because I get to do something that I have been looking forward to doing for quite a while. And uh, I just took the responsibility on myself without even asking anybody. I, I cleared it with Paul and that, so we're good. So, <laughs> but I'm, I want to introduce our new pastor and his wife and their child this morning. It is with great honor and great pleasure and much happiness that I want to introduce Jeremy Edmondson and Beth Edmondson and Nathaniel. Would you stand up, Beth, so that everybody knows who you are? Well, we really, really welcome you, brother. Well, good, morning. good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. It's been something else. Uh, I don't normally sound like this, but one thing they didn't tell me in the candidating process is what the pollen was like here. Um, surprise, surprise. It's good. Um, just a couple of words before we get into what we're going to look at today. Um, and I don't say this disrespecting anyone, so please don't, don't take it that way. I know how it is. You, you make a statement, and then many people interpret what they think it means. Uh, so if you're foggy on it, uh, come talk to me. Don't talk to anybody else about it, okay? Uh, today's a new day. It's a new day at Grace Bible Church. It's a new day for us. It's a new day definitely for me and Beth and Nathaniel. And I think that's an important thing as I was thinking about um, how in the world can we all get on the same page together? And so, um, laying in bed at 1030 at night, uh, Beth's already asleep. She doesn't snore. So, you know, but, uh, and I'm going through some stuff. I'm reading and reading and praying. And, you know, I got this email from Mary she said, you know, we normally put the title and the scripture references you're going to use about a month in advance for the next calendar that's coming out. She said, if you want to continue to do that, that's great. If not, that's fine. Just let me know what you want to do. You know, very kind, very generous. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there's all this pressure. What in the world are we going to do? <clears throat> and so I began praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And man, I prayed for a while. And, and I was going through, I was reading something. I don't remember what it was. I had my highlighter out. And all of a sudden it felt like God just went, here's what it is. So I need a commitment from everyone. Raise your right hand. Oh, yeah, even you that don't want to raise it, raise it, raise it. <laughs> Say, I promise, I promise to, be here to be here for the next year. <laughs> and if I can't make it, I will listen to the sermons online. See, there's grace in this. Good. We're all committed. We're all in. That's where we want to be. So does everybody have uh, the handout, the insert that I put in, in the handout? you would and do me a favor just hold it up so i know that you got it does anybody need a pen anybody need a pen we'll scrounge up some okay does anybody need a bible everybody's got a bible you need a bible excellent we'll get you a bible 
It's important. And here's the thing. If you're here, you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, take a Bible home. We have a plethora of them. Anybody seen Three Amigos? A plethora. We have a plethora of Bibles. <clears throat> some of you get that. Some of you are already not with me at all. That's okay. Good. There you go. Excellent. I'm glad. So here's some things. How many people like statistics? Some people do. The thing we don't like about them is like, man, is that really what people think, right? Sometimes we think that. I thought this was interesting. I was driving around a couple of weeks ago, and they did this quick blurb on the Christian state. This is SRN News. And then the guy wants to tell you something. You got like 28 seconds to listen hard, you know. And for guys who can only do one thing well at one time, my driving just goes out the window because I'm like, what? So it's, it's bad. But here are some things I, I think that are quite shocking, being that uh, they're probably true. But I gave you little blanks to fill in so that it would hopefully captivate your attention as we went through them. So, a recent survey of born-again Christians, 89%, 89% believe that God is the creator and ruler of the universe. Born-again Christians, they identify themselves as born-again, born-from-above Christians, which probably means they are largely evangelical in their persuasion, but 89%. Now, what's shocking about that? The 11%, isn't it? You say, wait a second, born again? What, what God are they worshiping, right? How about the next one? 52% believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Which the shocking part is, who are those 48%? The next one, 63% believe it is impossible to earn their way into heaven. Or sorry, possible. Shows you where I stand in that statistic. <laughs> 63% believe it is possible to earn their way into heaven. Pause for just one second. The question that pops up here is we have to ask, are they really born again? If they were under that pretense that they that something they needed to do, they're not. But if at one point they had a clear, solid grace-based gospel message about the death resurrection of Jesus Christ, then they are born again, but somebody led them astray after the fact. See, you, you, may, you may be good going whenever you believe in Christ, but you can get tripped up in discipleship afterwards. Okay, so we, we can't really make a judgment here, but it's still alarming. How about this last one? 66%. 66%. Reject the notion that they have a personal responsibility to share the gospel. Something tells me that if this last one would be obsolete, all the other numbers above it would have been better. Think about that. They reject the notion that they have a personal responsibility to share the gospel. Now, I hope that you're not under the, the false pretense that sharing the gospel is the reason why you call a preacher. I've had that before. You know, how many people have been saved in this church? Well, that's what we have our preacher for. Everybody is called to be a minister. Would you agree? Okay. Now, here's my question. What does this tell us about the church? What's that? Raise, raise your hand so I can... What does this tell you about these statistics? What does this tell you about the church? Raise your hand. There you go. What is it? The church is not doing its job. 
God our Father has so designed history to set aside for this age from Acts chapter 2, and some of us would say even from the death and resurrection of Christ, all the way into the rapture of the church is known as the church age. And God uses the church as his divinely orchestrated and put together instrument in order to reach this world. The church is failing. Now here's a great thing. I don't know much about you. And I'm looking forward to learning that. But coming in with this idea of, I don't know much about you, one thing I think is important is that we're all on the same page. That's why all of you have agreed to faithfully attend for the next year. Right? It's good. So here's the thing. I found this interesting. Two of the greatest coaches that have ever lived. John Wooden, UCLA basketball. Anybody remember that in the 60s? That was a little bit before my time. But he had created a dynasty there. I mean, they were the team to beat and came up against them. It was rough. Think about the great players that came out of there. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walton. I mean, those are some big guys. They're unstoppable. But at the beginning, very first practice, he would sit down with the team, regardless if they've been there before, regardless if they'd spent all four years there before. We don't have this one and done thing like we do in Kentucky now, but notice this. He would sit down with them and he would teach them two basic things. Pull your socks all the way up. Tie your shoelaces tight. Now, these are guys that just didn't start playing the game. You know, he didn't say, you guys are really tall. Let's come in. I'll teach you basketball. No, we know in college they go recruiting, looking for people, all of those things. Why, do they, why does he want you to pull your socks all the way up? What happens when your socks aren't pulled all the way up? We may not know this, and this may save your life today. <laughs> Anybody know? Why? Blisters. Do you realize that when you have even the smallest fold within your sock as it's sitting in your shoe, you could create a blister immediately? Now, what happens to a basketball player? They get a blister on the bottom of their foot. They're out. They're out one, maybe two games. They're missing practices. The cohesiveness and the chemistry of the team gets all messed up. Smart guy. Why would you want to tie your shoelaces tight? See, we know this one. You don't want your shoes falling off. Last thing you want is getting ready to make a move on somebody and you're doing one of these. That helps nobody. Doesn't help your team. You lose the ball. Next thing you know, you lost the game. Basics. Foundational things. So how many people are familiar with a coach named Vince Lombardi? Bob raised his hand before I even said it. How many are you familiar with? Amen. He may have just got saved. I don't know. He would sit down with his team. The first words out of his mouth, the first practice. Gentlemen, what would he say? Do you know? This is a football. Now, you know, some of them are like, yeah. We know what a football is. We just played four years of college. I just won the national championship. You're privileged to have me on your team. Of course I know what a football is. Do you think some people may have felt insulted on that team because he started like that? Let me ask you this. Was he wrong? See? 
That's interesting because it says a lot about the pride of the person that's receiving what's going on. Now, I say all that for this reason. With what we're getting ready to do, my goal is not to insult you, okay? Simply by having conversations with Pastor Steve, you guys are a well-educated bunch. I have no doubt about that whatsoever, and he has done a fantastic, wonderful, astounding job. And, and, and I'm extremely privileged to be standing here today. I am. But that being said, I want to make sure that we all back up and we all know why we know what we know and have a conviction about it. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Good. So let's get started. Fill in the blanks. My wife's excuse today, she has our child. That's good. The Bible is one book. How many of us ever think of the Bible as one book? When we talk to people, anybody raise your hand. We normally don't think of it like that. We normally say, there's a lot of books in here, but it makes up one cohesive whole is what we're dealing with. The Bible's one book. It's made up of many books with one congruent. That's a good message if you're ever playing Scrabble. One congruent message and theme throughout. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Now, some of you here may not be familiar with your books of the Bible. That's okay. Normally what happens is, is if you hold it like this and put your thumb right in the middle, chances are you're going to open to somewhere between Psalms and Isaiah. They tuck up a large chunk in the middle of it. But if you'd open up to Isaiah 45, verse 22. God has a message for the creation. God has something he wants to say to every single person at every time, all the time, regardless of when they've lived, where they've been, what's happened to them, what they have done, regardless. So look at chapter 45 of Isaiah. Look at verse 22. Turn to me and what? Be saved. Pay attention because this is the heart of God for the world. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For what reason? Anytime that you see the word for, starting something after a statement is made in your Bible, he is giving you a detailed explanation or reason for the statement he just made. That happens all throughout. Watch what happens here. Why should we do this? For, here's the reason, I am who? God. He is Yahweh. I am God, and there is no other. Now think about the implications of this. Because if he is the only way that you can be saved, and there is no other God, and only God can save, then that means nothing else can save you. Everybody clear on that? Okay, we're starting real basic, man. I know you guys are like, oh my gosh, I'm about to pass out. No, it's good, I promise. Mitch, if I walk a little bit, I apologize. I hear some rumbling. It makes my voice sound more powerful, and I have more authority, so that's good. <laughs> Keep that going. It's good. God is a, here's your next blank, communicator. He wants to communicate with you and I and everyone outside of these four walls. Why is that? Here's the reason why. He desires to be known. The Bible is his self-revelation. The Bible is him letting you and I in on the details of who he is. Notice the next part. In reading the Bible, here's some things we learn. Number one, we learn who God is. We learn what he's like. We learn how he interacts. 
We learn what he expects. We learn what he has done. And most importantly, probably in all of that, we want to know what he thinks. Now, how many of you husbands, probably having just committed an atrocious act before your wife, are sitting across the room looking at her, and what's going on in your mind is, I wonder what she's thinking. Because it's a mystery in there, isn't it? And you don't know if you're in trouble or how sore of a spot you touched or if you just need to wait and apologize because you want to keep your skull, right? It pays to know what someone is thinking. The amazing thing about God is that he unfolds his thoughts for us. He wants us to know him. He invites us in to know him. Now, here's something that's important. Your first blank of the next one. Doctrinal studies cannot be properly understood if they are isolated from the foundation. Doctrinal studies cannot be understood if you don't go back to the foundation. I think this is the reason why the church today, especially in America, and man, Europe is just doing a pitiful job with this, have such a problem understanding what the words faith and believe mean. What they do is they run to the New Testament. And the reason why we run to the New Testament is because we're most familiar with it. We actually got daring and marked in it a little bit. And it doesn't have all the cobwebs that we'd have to undo in the Old Testament in order to get to it. And so faith and belief have become all kinds of crazy things. Submit your life, confess all of your sins, be willing to, to, to bow down, uh, follow wholeheartedly. I mean, it's, we've just got all of these amazing things that have been wrapped up in this word faith that if we would just go back to the Old Testament and see how God used it first and how he developed it would clear all the fog away. It is one book. It's a cohesive whole. And it is helpful in interpreting itself. A lot of doctrinal studies that we struggle with, eternal security, full assurance of salvation. What's the difference between a relationship with God and having fellowship with God? Those are two different things. Guess where the foundational points of that are found? In the Old Testament. Now, it's my first Sunday. I didn't want to pull a volunteer Two reasons. Number one, we're still getting familiar with one another. Number two, I was afraid that Tom was going to be the one that volunteered. <laughs> so I have a volunteer. Just to demonstrate how important it is. Foundations. How important is a foundation? Kenny, how important is a foundation? If you don't start right, you don't end up right. And for your particular line of work, that's important, isn't it? Anybody go to look at, I'm looking at a house. Good glory. Our closing date has been moved back three days. Yeah. Anybody believe in prayer? Awesome. Good. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, poor Jerry. <laughs> oh, goodness, he's still here. <laughs> I got a question. I'm sure you do. <laughs> but think about this. You can look at all of the, oh, I love the fixtures. I love the way the cabinet work looks. The ceilings are amazing. I love this fan. You can do all of that. But if you have a foundation that is cracked up and crumbling, you're in for the long haul. You just bought a money pit. It's a problem. 
So it pays to have a foundation that is reinforced. Anything like that, anything at all. Can you imagine if we were here worshiping, but we were all skeptical of the foundation? How many of us would be sitting where we're sitting? You see what I'm saying? Foundations matter. What if you got in your car and you weren't for sure that all the tires were going to do well? You think you'd drive off on a long trip? Not a chance. Foundations matter. Do you know who foundations really matter with? This guy. Foundations matter. Do you know why? I mean, think about it. What if you had a foundationless Mr. Potato Head? Well, why isn't, why isn't he doing what he's supposed to do? Why is that? No foundation. Now, here's the thing. He looks pretty good from the mouth up, doesn't he? He kind of looks like Chuck. I don't know. <laughs> Wait a second. Hold on. Hold on here. There we go. He kind of looks like Chuck, doesn't he? <laughs> but here's the thing. Are we having any problems? No. In fact, Mr. Potato Head's able to do everything that Mr. Potato Head needs to do. And entertain as he can. Why? Because he's not rolling off somewhere where we don't know where he's at. And a lot of times, seasoned Christians, mature Christians, Christians who kind of come every once in a while, Christians who read their Bible, Christians who don't read their Bible, Christians that are more prone to pray than they are to read, regardless of what it is, baby believers, doesn't matter. The foundation is essentially important. We have to have it in line. We have to have it set. And thank God that he has given us a solid foundation. Now, let me encourage you with this. This is a book called From God to Us. It is written by Norman Geisler and William Nix. And if you're familiar with any of Norman Geisler's work, he is an apologist. And it's a pretty thick book. And all this is about the amazing quality, authenticity, and integrity of the very book that we look to for everything of matters of faith and practice to how to understand life. I encourage you to get it. It's an excellent book, From God to Us. It's an easy read. But man, it's encouraging. Foundations matter. A lot of times when we get real involved in doctrinal studies, we spend a lot of times looking at the bricks closely. The problem is those bricks rest on a foundation. And if we don't understand or observe or embrace our foundation, we cannot understand those doctrinal studies. So we have to start where God starts, with the foundation. How about the next part? The Bible must be understood chronologically. Chronologically. How do you spell that? C-H-R-onologically. That's how you spell it. Chronologically. You're really looking to, how many people need to know how to spell it? We good? Okay, okay, I'll give it to you. C-H-R-O-N-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L-L-Y. My son sounds like he's slain in the spirit back there. <clears throat> the Bible must be understood chronologically. Genesis occurs where Genesis occurs because that's where God wants it. Regardless if you're dealing with our English Bible or the Jewish Bible, because they have a different order of books. Guess where he started it in both of them? Genesis. He wants us to know Genesis. Now, 
We've often done this, and man, I am guilty of this. You talk to somebody who's curious about the gospel, maybe an unbeliever, maybe be a baby believer. Well, where can I read? Well, where can I know more about this? Or we want to suggest something to them. And I usually say, well, what you need to do is you need to read the gospel of John. How many people have done that? The gospel of John. Why? Because the gospel of John is primarily written to who? Unbelievers. It is written to unbelievers for the purpose of bringing about a knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they can believe and be saved. How does John start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, you may have been a believer for a while, but think back to where if you didn't know much about Christianity at all and you read those first two verses, would you be a little confused? You'd say, why is Word capitalized? That's weird. This says, in the beginning was this. That doesn't give me any frame of reference. Why does it say, in the beginning, to give me a point of time, but then it uses the next word, was? That means before the point of time that they gave me. Everybody see how crazy this could get? If you have a critical, analytical mind that is truly going to read to know, if we start them off with the Gospel of John, we may have confused them. How does Genesis start? In the beginning, What? God created the heavens and the earth. Let me ask you this. Is that plain? Man, it's so plain people get it wrong, isn't it? It is so plain in front of your face, unbelievably clear that everybody has to dance around such simplicity so that they don't have to accept the idea of an almighty, sovereign creator. We live in ridiculous times, don't we? And here's the thing. I love it. God didn't make it hard. All you got to do is turn to the first book, the very first sentence, and that's it. And I tell you what, you start with that, all of a sudden, everything else in the Bible becomes very clear. God is the one who we're answerable to. And when time began, there he was, and he created everything. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks, but, or actually next week. Moving on here, important. This approach chronologically brings balance. Do me a favor, turn with me to Hebrews 1. I want you to see how the author of Hebrews starts his book. Again, we're doing a lot of flipping around. If you're not familiar, just go to the right. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John eventually. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Keep going, keep going, keep going. So you come to Hebrews. And if you have somebody that's having trouble next to you, be a good brother or sister in Christ and reach over and smack them on the back of the head and say, don't you know where Hebrews is? I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but show them. Show them where it's at. Show them where it's Help them out. If they have trouble reading, get your finger out there. Read along with them. Nothing wrong with it. Put your arm around them. Make them feel loved. It's good. Now, don't stone me, okay? But I am choosing today to read out of the New King James Version. It's Okay. It hasn't been updated since 1982. I think it's doing pretty good. So here it is. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, I love it, right? Let's just be clear. God, who at various times and in various ways, what's the next word? Did what? Spoke. God speaks. How does God speak? Well, he spoke at different times in history and in various ways. What are some various ways that God spoke? Dreams, giving people just revelations, signs and wonders. Visions, gave people visions. What's that? 
Burning, he even used bushes. I mean, yeah, exactly right. When he wanted to get Moses' attention, when you've got a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up, that'll get your attention. And that's what God wants. God wanted to communicate with Moses at that time, and he said, hey, look at this burning bush, it's not burning. What? That'll get your attention. Now notice, he spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Now, what do we know that section of the Bible as? The Old Testament. Notice, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand, number one, here is the section that we're talking about here. This is how God has spoken in times past, and he spoke through prophets in order to get his message across to people. But notice what it says here. Verse 2, has in these last days, uh uh-oh, are we in the last days? Yeah, we have been ever since the coming of Jesus Christ. That's why I don't get all weirded out by, are we in the end times? Well, we're in the last days, it's pretty clear. We have been for 2,000 years. But notice, in these last days, spoken to us by who? His Son. Now, what section of the Bible do we call that? The New Testament. Seems here that the author of Hebrews is pretty convinced about the authority of the Scripture from beginning to end. Would you agree? Notice that. And here's the interesting thing about this. Notice it says, by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's the future time, right? When he comes to reign in the kingdom. And look at the next part. Through whom also he made the worlds. When did that happen? In the past. Notice that. Old Testament, New Testament. Past, future. Spans the whole gamut. Chronological approach is important. Starting where God starts. And all the major pieces get put into place. The Bible is a, here's your next blank, progressive revelation. It is a progressive revelation. As you start in Genesis and as you read forward, you learn more and more and more about God and man and creation and sin. And here is the reason why. If you don't know who God is, and you don't know who man is, and you don't know what sin is, you cannot be prepared for the God-man who takes away sin. Everybody see how that works? 39 books have been set in place before the name Jesus ever comes on the scene. There's a reason for that. God is intentional in wanting us to know these basic things about him so that when the Savior does show up, we will not be like ignorant, self-absorbed Pharisees and miss him. They missed him. They knew the scriptures better than most anybody in their time, and they missed the Christ. That should be mind-boggling to us, and it should be very sobering for us about how important it is to pay attention to the scriptures. This is God's design for understanding history, a progressive revelation. Turn over with me. Everybody, turn over your papers. Turn with me also. Keep going to the right from Hebrews. Find 2 Peter, just to help you out. It's after 1 Peter. Just in case anybody wondered. But there is no 3 Peter, so don't think that you got to back up. If you hit 3 Peter, somebody gave you the wrong bite of all, okay? (laughs) Just letting you know. God has chosen to communicate us through a profound method, but also a foolish one. And that is through writing. Of all of the things. I mean, how many, raise your hand real quick. I'm just curious. Nobody's going to think bad of you. At least they shouldn't. How many people are just not into reading? You're like an audiobook person. 
Okay, there's nothing wrong with you whatsoever. Not at all. Don't feel that you're inferior because of that. I've had some people, well, you're, that means you're not reading your Bible. You know, well, get your nose out of my business. It's between me and God, right? You can listen to the audio Bible. It's okay. Some of us just aren't readers. It's very interesting. Sometimes we would much rather have somebody visually show us something than read it for what it has to say. But it's amazing to think, out of all the ways that God could have communicated in unveiling himself, he wanted everybody to have a copy of this. Do you realize how privileged we are that that bookcase is full of Bibles? There are some people who are prisoners awaiting to be martyrs for the faith that have hidden a verse or two in between the, 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 the slats of their sandals. And while they're not getting beaten and while they're not fighting off rats and while they're not scrounging for food and while they're trying to avoid feces in the cell that they're being kept in let's just be honest about what that type of persecution looks like they're pulling it out and they're meditating over one or two verses and they are holding them precious and dear to their hearts and here we have the entire revelation of god's word here we're privileged people which means we have to steward it well and we have to be responsible with it well that's how important it is it's i feel like i need to light off fireworks to make everybody understand the magnitude of how important this is I really do. So notice what it says here, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. We're starting in the middle of verse. I don't like to do that, but it, it hits what we do. I'm a, I'm a big context person. But we're going to start in verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Why is that? Notice, for prophecy never came by the will of man. This wasn't just what Jeremy thought, and so Jeremy wrote it down. No, 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 no. Look what it says here. It never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, set apart men of God. That doesn't mean they were sinless. Spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now understand this. The men who wrote the Bible were not inspired that's important to understand. They were set apart for this reason, but they sinned just like you and I sin. But the writings that were produced by the movement of the Holy Spirit through them, those writings, the original writings, the original manuscripts of the Bible, that is what is inspired of God. Now let's talk about why that is. You've got a lot of interesting little blanks here. The sheer makeup of the Bible is incredible when considered it. Now think about any book that you've ever known in history that's made up like this. Number one, 66 books. You have 66 books in your Bible. Maps does not count, okay? Just making sure everybody knows. I'll never ask you to turn to the book of maps. 66 books. You have 40 plus, some, Bible, some books we don't know who wrote them. Hebrews, we're not really for sure who wrote it. We have 40 plus different authors. 66 books, but 40 plus different authors. This writing occurred over a span of 1,600 years. 1,600 years. That's almost as long as Tom's been alive. 1,600. He wore a shirt today, so I wanted to poke on that. 1,600 years. How about the next one? On three different continents. In three different languages. Three different continents. Africa, Asia, Europe, three different languages, mainly Hebrew and Greek, but some Aramaic. In fact, some people believe that the first full manuscript of Matthew's gospel was completely written in Aramaic. 
Why? Because it's got such an amazingly Jewish flavor to it. A lot of people have found that. But here's the, ama- here's the most amazing statistic, out, or the most amazing number out of all these. This is the last one. One consistent theme with no errors or contradictions. You never have a place where your Bible will contradict itself. If it does, you cannot trust it. Now understand, through translation, reproductions, all kinds of different things like that, scholars coming to this, and man, the translation of the Bible has been very laboriously and carefully handled. It's been meticulous. But there are some issues that translations will have in between one another. You know, I read something, you go, man, I don't understand it. It doesn't say that in my translation. It's a little different. You have those variations, and that's what should drive us to look at what the original languages say so we can make an educated decision about that. But when you talk about the originals that were written by these very people, as moved by God, they are inspired, free of error, free of contradiction writings. It is incredible. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, everybody familiar with that? 1947, little boy lost his goat, can't find him. He's over in Qumran. He looks up and maybe my goat went up in that cave up there. Chucks a rock up there and he hears, he says, that's not a goat, right? So he climbs up there to look and see what it is. Come to find out there's all these stone jars, clay jars maybe, that are about this tall. Takes off the lid, opens it up, And there are scrolls and scrolls and scrolls of Old Testament writings. In fact, they found a complete, entire manuscript of Isaiah. Now, when they dated it, that's about 200 B.C., okay, when they dated these. Before that, the oldest writings that we had were 900 A.D. Everybody see a big discrepancy there? We're talking 1,100 years you know what's amazing when they set down Isaiah from 200 and the Isaiah from 900? Found that there was virtually nothing wrong with them that entire time. In fact, they found only one or two little things, maybe punctuation-wise, that were strange. Nothing messed up the contents, nothing messed up the subjects, nothing hurt doctrine, nothing messed... It was incredible. And it just goes to show you how God preserves his word over time. All of these amazing factors. Have you ever heard of any other writing that has these type of logistics in it? I haven't. And yet you find one consistent theme throughout the entire thing. Unifies it all together. No contradictions. Amazing. Let's move on. What can we deduce from such astonishing facts? Here's what I tell you. That an amazing, all-powerful, all-knowing being is over it. That's what you can pull. So two things here. General revelation. General revelation. This is everything you observe. Everybody look out to your right. Trees. Anybody in here plant those trees? Nobody did. How'd those trees get there? You did plant those trees? No, you didn't? Okay. What's that? You and I are going to have problems, aren't we? Oh, okay. We're, we're glad to have you, brother. Don't come back next week, okay? <clears throat> Just kidding. Just kidding. I like a joker. I really do. So, just kidding. General revelation is everything that you can observe and see. You walk outside, you look up at the sun, you go, oh, that feels so good. Especially, I've heard that from a lot of you recently here. I guess the sun never shines. So you guys didn't tell me much of that either before I got here, did you? I've been hoodwinked in some way. But your natural observings around you, where'd all that come from? 
Obviously, the sun is way bigger than we are, so we've got to come to some sort of conclusion. How about your conscience? You ever wonder why your conscience tries to get you to not do certain things and pushes you to do other things? Who put that there? Well, that's my conscience. It is. But that ain't you talking because you want to do the opposite of what it's telling you to do. See how that works? Don't touch that wet paint. Well, it'll only hurt if I do a little. We can't handle it, can we? Wet paint? Yep, it's wet. Good grief. But the amazing thing is that God is up the ante. Special revelation. He has specially revealed himself, and he's done it in the chronicles of this text. He has unfolded himself, and he has invited the world to know him. Special revelation. And notice this. The Bible is God breathed. The NIV nailed this verse. Take your Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Turn back to the left a little bit. To the left. You'll, you'll come across Titus and you'll hit 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible is God breathed. This is also known as Anybody know what this is known as? Inspiration. The inspiration of the Scriptures. Now, this isn't like a Thomas Kincaid picture that's meant to inspire you on to greatest things. That's not what we're talking about. But the idea of biblical inspiration means that these are the actual God-breathed words that he wants you to know. The Greek word is theophanoustos, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong because there's so many letters in there that go to lots of consonants. Weird. Uh, But what it means is, is the idea of Theo being God in particular, and then being pneuma is where you get it from, being spirit or wind or breath. It's the idea of God breathing these words for us to know. So notice what this says here. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does your translation, New, New American Standard say? is inspired by God. If you have the NIV, it'll say all Scripture is God-breathed, the inspiration of the Scriptures. Notice what it says. And is profitable. In other words, it is going to benefit you in some way. It is going to benefit you from some way. In fact, here's what you'll find. Christians who are in rebellion or lost people usually don't want anything to do with the Bible because it's pointing out and bringing light upon the exact things that they need help from. So notice how profitable the scriptures are because they bring conviction upon people. Number one, notice what it says here. It is profitable for doctrine. Now, doctrine is a stuffy church word. Some of us, our toes curl up in our shoes when we hear it. But all that means is sound teaching. It means it's just teaching you the differences between what is right, what is wrong, and what things are. How about the next one it says here? For reproof. What is reproof? Anybody know? It's being convicted. Now, that doesn't mean three to five years convicted, okay? That's not what that means. It means that you have a deep conviction of, oh my gosh, this is wrong in my life because something divine has spoken into it and it is now challenging me to be a different person. Now, if you're a Christian, you just got saved. Let that mess with your head for a little while. I'll just let that sit there and see how you deal with it. You can call me later on Wednesday. I've been talking, uh, how do Christians get saved again? What in the world? We'll talk about that later. But I just want to poke you a little bit with it. You all seem like friendly bears. It's okay. So notice here, reproof, conviction, beyond dispute. Because the truth is speaking to me, I'm now convicted of something that is wrong in my life. 
How many of us in here are liars? If you don't raise your hand, you just pegged yourself, right? Exactly. And so what do we need to do? By reading the word and by taking in how displeasing liars are to God and how Jesus has saved us from a life of habitual lying, we now realize that we can operate in a better way, not to be accepted because God, uh, before God, we're already fully accepted in Christ, but because we are accepted and want to be living lives that are fully pleasing to him. Everybody see how that's different? We got convicted of that sin, and so what do we need to do? We need to confess it. We need to repent of it repent, having our minds changed about it. We were thinking this way. We thought the little white lies were okay to get through. No, 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 no. Little white lies are another silly word for big fat lies. That's what they are. That's the big or little white lies is the politically correct word for, oh my gosh, I'm a liar. That's what that is. We get under that conviction and we realize, man, I, I, I shouldn't be talking like that. I shouldn't be saying those things. The word bringing conviction. It's reproof. How about the next one for correction? Correction means to straighten out again. That's what it means. Imagine if you've got a rope, you put a rope down on the ground and you do like this with it, eventually your rope's going to go all swoopy like this. Kevin, you ever do that for fun? You, you work with ropes, don't you? You ever go out there and just be like, that's fun. You ever do that? You're trying to get attention? Hey, right. But all Kevin has to do is take that rope and go, and he straightens it out again. Well, guess what? This idea, that this word here for correction means the exact same thing. The word is here to straighten us out. Now, if I ask you, and don't fall into temptation here, if I ask you, do you know somebody that needs straightening out? Right? All you wives just nudge your husband. Exactly. Oh, are you, talk, are you pointing to yourself? Good. I thought you were pointing to your husband. Good job. She's like, yes, it's me. I need straightening out. A lot of times we have the attitude of everybody else needs to be straightened out. Guess what though? See, this is an amazing thing. The word of God doesn't put us in competition with one another. It's just us and God. So who needs to be straightened out? Me. Yeah, and Connie, exactly. <laughs> so moving on. How about the next one? Reproof, correction, for instruction. And that actually means chastening. That actually means child training. When my son touches something after I've told him no two or three times and I finally have to pop his little hand and I said no and get in his face, man, this was great. Can I tell a story for a second? Okay, good deal. Some of you are like, no, I'm telling it anyway. This is great. So I was, I was uh, before we left, I was getting Beth's car fixed something, something in the windshield had a crack and those safe light people, they go in and they make it look like, you know, somebody smudged your window or something, but they fill in that crack. It's amazing what they do. Well, I'm waiting in the waiting room. It's going to take like 20 minutes to get it done. And Nathaniel's running around, and they have the desk back there. And because all the guys are working, nobody's there. And he's wanting to go around. I said, no, no, don't do that. And he'll go over there, take him, turn him around, get him in different. No, he's determined he's going to do it. <clears throat> he's sitting there trying to go after him. And finally, I said, Nathaniel. And he stops, not looking at me, stops. I said, if you go behind that desk, I'm going to spank your behind. And he turns and looks at me and he goes, ah. <laughs> did he get it accomplished? He's 14 months old. Inside as a parent, I'm going, right? Because we got 16-year-olds that don't know what the word no means. Getting him early. And he understands it. He gets it. The Word of God wants to do that too. It wants to speak into our lives and tell us, you don't have to get to the point where I'm threatening to spank your behind. 
We can just tell you flat out here and you can heed what I have to say. And next thing you know, and pay attention real quick because sometimes we miss this. Look what it says. Instruction in what? Righteousness. Uh Uh-oh, hold on. Righteousness has the word right in it, right? Which is the opposite of what? Which is right and left. (laughs) You might need to go over and sit with him. It's the outer darkness over there. <laughs> right is the different of difference. Uh, wrong is the opposite of right, which tells you that God has a standard by which He is calling us all to live to. He wants all of His children living in righteousness. Now, why is that? Here's the reason why: because anything less than living a life that is responsive to the Word in the righteousness that God provides is a life that is settling for way less than what Jesus provided. Everybody see that? I mean, he provided riches and abundance beyond what we could possibly fathom, comprehend, and we will never figure it all out in the word. We'll never get it all. But here's the thing. It is a life that is leaps and bounds above anything that we could ever live on our own and that we would ever even try to fathom or conjure in our lives. He wants us to live in righteousness. And he's got a plan to do it. How does he do it? His word. So notice here in your blank, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, your blank is, this is also known as inspiration. Now let me clarify this for you. I'm, it's a little theological, but I think it's important for you to understand so there's no misconceptions. And I'm trying to stay within the time limit, so don't everybody freak out. You will beat the Methodist to Pizza Ranch, I promise, okay? <laughs> so, this is what is known as verbal, verbal, plenary, Inspiration. If you want, maybe next to inspiration there, write verbal, dash, and then under it, write plenary, dash. Does that sound good? Now, verbal, what do we mean? Forgive me if I'm I'm doing all that stuff. Pollen, man. I'm on six different kinds of medicine right now, I think. No wonder I'm not better. But anyway, what does it mean by verbal? Spoken, the words. The words that are being used. The very words that God is using are inspired. Every little word. In fact, doesn't Jesus said, I tell you the truth, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all is accomplished? Now, Pastor Steve is a Hebrew scholar. Jot and tittle, what's a jot? Yod, which is tiny, tiny, isn't it? It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what is a tittle? It's just a mark. It's like how we use an apostrophe. We just, in writing, it's just... Like that. It doesn't serve the same function, but it doesn't take much to write it. It's just a little, you would have thought somebody messed up, like skimmed their, 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 their pencil across the page. Even the smallest things God has breathed in the word of God. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God has not wasted one single word in the word. Now, there's some people, have you ever heard people, well, I just hold to the red letters. You ever, heard, you ever known them? Is anybody here like that? Okay, if you are, you need to see me after church, Okay. It'll be good. That's a joke. I'm not a threatening dude, I promise. I'm not. But when we talk about plenary, we're talking about the entire scope. We're talking about from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, every single bit. It's not that Jesus' words were more inspired than Paul's and that Peter's words were more inspired than Isaiah. God is speaking the entire gamut. Does that make sense? Now, here's why this is important. A few years ago, when Obama was president, He made a very interesting statement. 
He said, I would feel much better about holding to something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount than some obscure passage in Romans. Why is everybody shocked? I mean, I don't think he's saved. It's not my, it's not my role to judge him. He's not saved, he's a Democrat. That's not had anything to do with that. <clears throat> I don't know, but some people think like that. That's all I'm saying. Some people do. But what's, what's so amazing about that statement? What is he telling you? What's inspired and what's not? The Sermon on the Mount's inspired, but whatever Paul wrote in Romans is just, psh, is it second tier? Is it second tier revelation? No, it's not. See, but see, this is how the world thinks about the Bible. Cherry picking. It's buffet Christianity. I love this verse, but this verse I can do without. Don't get me wrong. There are some things that are addressed to us, and there are some things that are addressed for our knowledge of so that we can operate in a different way. I, I get it. There are things that are written to Israel. There are things that are written to the church. We need to keep those distinctions clear. But all of Scripture is inspired by God, no matter who wrote it. If it's in the Bible, it has been inspired by God. Even a world leader can make a mistake like that. The Bible is divine truth. Truth must be two things to be true. You got to have at least two things locked in in order for something to be true. Number one, it has to be coherent. In other words, by coherent, I mean it has to be understandable. You have to be able to understand it. When you comprehend your existence, it has to be logically comprehensible. In other words, it makes sense. Do we have a problem with sin? Does the Bible explain where sin came from? Yes. Does it explain how sin gets dealt with? See what I'm saying? It's logically compatible with how we live. Are we uniquely and wonderfully made? Aren't you glad we don't all look like one another? We're not just a bunch of like spiritual Oompa Loompas around everywhere. Aren't you glad we don't all look like that? Everybody know that from Willy Wong? Okay, good. Aren't you glad we don't all look the same? We're all uniquely different. We're all very diverse. We're to be unified, but the Lord obviously loves diversity because he's made us all very different. Is there an explanation for that? Where do you find it? Genesis. Everybody see how that works? So notice, all this diversity we have, all of these questions that we have, it needs to be coherent. It needs to be understandable in how I exist. The second thing that you need to have is consistency consistency. Why is it that we don't take someone at their word after so long? They stop being consistent in their word, don't they? And what we say, well, you lied to me before. I don't know that I can fully trust you anymore. Why? Because somewhere their consistency wore out along the way. By consistency, agreeable in its various parts without any contradictions. Do you realize that what you hold in your hands, in your lap, whatever it is on your phone, hopefully you're not doing that. But notice, it's harmonious. It's harmonious. It all fits together. In fact, there's a book called, and in the 70s, this was the title. Now it's called Jesus Christ, The Greatest Life. In the 70s, it was called The Life of Christ in Stereo. Because that was a big deal back then. And what this guy did, who was a Greek scholar, is he sat down and he put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just like this without having to add or take away one word. As far as I know, it is the only completely harmonious compilation and harmony of the Gospels that's ever been written. He didn't have to add a thing. And he was able to put it all together, the life of Jesus, just as the Gospels depict it, all put together. It's amazing. 
It can be done. Why? Because it's consistent. It has consistency. So far, God is batting a thousand in consistency. Would you agree? Who's he let down? Tell you nobody. So, if the Bible is true, here's your last one. It must necessarily be, anybody want to take a guess what this is? It was truth, yes. Authoritative. If all of these factors that we've talked about, if it's inspired by God, if it's 66 books over 1,600 years with 40 plus different authors, three continents, three languages, one continuous theme, if it's both consistent and coherent, if it's the idea of God actually speaking and wanting to do things who he speaks and he wants the world to know what he has said and so he has put this together for us to know, then it's authoritative. In other words, it reigns. It has the say-so. See, here's one of the most complicated things to deal with is you go to a brother or sister that's in sin and you want to humbly and lovingly and graciously talk with them about it. Your opinion at that moment does not matter. But what should matter is when you take them to the Word. Because in the Word, it's not you speaking, it's God speaking. Is everybody with me? You should never at any time trust my opinion about anything. Never. What we should be convinced and convicted by is the Word of God. And if the Word of God unfolds for us how we ought to act, speak, think, believe, behave, walk, love, whatever it is, witness and share. Hopefully we're not falling in that 66% that feel they have no obligation to share the gospel. If that is what the word of God has commanded us, then that should be enough to light the fuse of the church so that it begins representing truth faithfully. We have an incredible gift of God's grace in our hands. It's amazing. Everybody with me? Who fell asleep? Okay, let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for the wondrous unfolding that you have given us in the pages of Scripture. God, you invite the world, turn to you, be saved. You are God. There is no other like you. And thank you, God, that you have chosen to speak to us through the Bible. Thank you for this incredible gift. I pray, God, that it encourages us, reinforces in us the opportunities that we get to spend in it. No time in the Word is ever wasted. So, Father, if we're, if we're not convinced of that, convict our hearts today, please. Uh, help us, Lord, to realize that we need to make time for it and that that should be what's on our lips and should be motivating our decision-making. It should be prompting our um, fellowship with one another. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his beautiful, wonderful sacrifice, selfless as can be, for, for, for stained sinners like myself. We love you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.